Open your Bibles there today, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. One of the things that I really liked to do when, when our kids were growing up, we used to like to uh, take our kids on ski vacations. And uh, we were traveling from Colorado, from uh, Kentucky, rather, to Colorado. That's where we usually skied. And uh, Colorado usually has a lot of snow around ski season. But sometimes uh, they don't get all the snow that they need to open up the resort. But we're like most families. Uh, we had to plan our vacations just like everybody else does. And so when we planned a ski vacation, we had to go whether the ski report said that uh, there was any snow or not. So we'd pile all the kids into the car. We'd hit the highways. And all the way, we'd be praying, let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. And we wanted it to snow because uh, we wanted an abundance of snow in order that the skiing would be good. Well, today I'm not going to talk to you about let it snow, but we're going to talk today about let it grow, let it grow, let it grow. And we're going to talk about how God grows his church. And whether we're talking about spiritual growth or we're talking about numerical growth, certainly do want God to give us an abundance of growth in his church. In the past few lessons, we've learned that the church of Corinth, and we're in several weeks now into our study of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, uh, we've learned that the church at Corinth was a church with many problems. And I, I like to think of our church not so much as a church with problems. I don't like to concentrate on problems, but rather we're a church with a lot of opportunities and a lot of challenges. And one of the challenges that we do have as a church is to have a growing church. We want to establish a church that grows. Well, how does God actually grow the church? We're going to read about that today from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I'd like you to stand with me, please, as we read God's word. Uh, We're going to get a little bit of a running start at this. We're going to back up to verse number 3. 1 Corinthians 3, verse number 3. We'll start there. And then we'll get into the subject matter for today. Verse number three says, For ye are yet carnal. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? You may remember last week we talked about uh, this particular verse, uh, carnal Christians. You may remember there are actually three types of persons in the world. There are those that are, are natural people. These are people that don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. They're lost. Then there are spiritual, spirit-filled Christians, and that's what all of us want to be. And then there are carnal Christians. And these are Christians that are divisive, and they argue over petty, insignificant things. Verse number four, For while one saith, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are ye not carnal? Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos, but ministers by whom ye believe, even as the Lord gave to every man? You might want to underline the word ministers in that verse, because there it simply means servants. We are servants. Verse number 6, Paul begins to explain about the growth. He says, I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then, neither is he that planteth anything, neither is he that watereth, but God giveth the increase. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry, ye are God's building. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good folks who've come out today to hear the preaching of your word. We thank you, Lord, for what's taken place in our service already, uh, for the 
uh, good singing and for the recognition of our veterans. We just thank you, Lord, so much for all of this. We pray now that you might bless this message as we bring it today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As Paul begins this discussion about how to grow the church, I think that he wants all eyes to focus on one thing. Paul wants us to get our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ and to focus on God, who's the one who really gives the increase in the church. What we need to do is really take our eyes off the personalities of the church, all the individual personalities. Stop looking at how talented that we are, what we're able to do. Don't think about the great church programs that we might be able to implement. And and don't let us think about the clever way that we're able to manipulate people and to bring them in. But rather what Paul wants us to do is focus entirely upon God because he's the one who's to receive all of the glory. Well, God, of course, does use human instrumentation in his work. And whenever you start getting humans involved in things, there's always the problem of personalities. There are people that really want to take the credit for what God does. And Paul is going to address that in this scripture today. And I believe in verse number five, Paul is is telling us and he's defining us, first of all, the kind of person that God blesses. There is a particular kind of person that God blesses and one that God uses to grow his church. Now, the problem here is an obvious one. Paul had established this church. There were people that were old-timers in the church. They were there back at the very beginning when Paul came. He delivered the gospel to them, and they had a strong attraction to Paul. They, They had a bond with him because he's the one who first gave them the gospel of Christ, and they were saved under his ministry. But the truth about Paul is that he was not really a great preacher. And Paul admits what people had been saying about him. We've talked about this in the last few messages, but here was a culture with people that had great oratory skills. And Paul admitted that people did say about him, you're a pretty good letter writer, Paul. And when you write these letters to us, they are weighty. They do contain deep doctrinal truths, but unfortunately, your speech is contemptible. In other words, you're just not that great of a preacher. Now, Paul was not a polished orator like the Corinthians were used to. I mean, they were used to those great uh, uh, orators, those great philosophers. They could deliver those great flowery speeches and motivating speeches. And here along comes a young charismatic preacher by the name of Apollos. And he comes into the church and there are people who really liked Apollos. And there were people who started lining up behind Apollos, and some of them lined up behind the Apostle Paul, and there began to be divisions in this church. So some really liked Paul, some really liked Apollos. And so what you have in this church is preacher groupies. And Paul was really upset about that. And so he wrote to them and he says, Now you are acting like baby Christians. They were dividing up into all these little groups. You know, it'd be like you saying, you know, I really like Brother Dalton when he gets up and leads the singing. He, he's just the best song leader ever. And then somebody else says, well, no, when Gary comes up and, and he substitutes for Brother Dalton, I like him much better. And so you decide that you're going to line up. We are the Dalton supporters. And this group over here says that we are the Gary supporters. And there begins to be a division between you and a contention because of those personalities. Well, here in the church at Corinth, it wasn't song leaders, it was preachers. 
And they lined up behind their favorite preacher. And Paul says, this is a sign of your immaturity. Now, we have kind of an interesting twist here because there are some who believe that what Paul did was simply substitute names. Just like I substituted Gary and Dalton, that Paul substituted his name, Paul, and Apollos' name for two people in the church that were actually causing a division. And so there really was a Gary and there really was a Dalton in that church that was causing a problem and a contention among the people because they were lining up behind them. Well, I don't know if that's actually what Paul did. He may have done that just so he didn't have to particularly identify who those two men were. Uh, That might be. I don't know if that's the truth or not. But I do know this, that the point is very well taken. Whenever you decide that you're going to pick sides and you divide up over personalities, that is a sign of an immature Christian. And so what Paul says here, I want to show you the kind of person that God blesses. I want to show you the kind of person that God will really use to grow a church. Now, this type of person has two special characteristics. He understands two things very well. The first one is, he's one who understands servanthood. Now, let's look at that word that Paul uses in verse number 5. I told you to underline that word, the word ministers. And what Paul says, what am I... And what is Apollos but just ministers? Now, we see that word minister out on the church sign. We drive by a church and we see the name there, the minister of this church. And we think, wow, you know, that's an important person. That's a big person. Uh, That's the person who deserves prestige because of the position that he has. And so he's to be highly respected above everybody else. Well, of course... I think that you ought to respect the pastor. You ought to respect the minister of the church. But that is not the way that Paul is using the word here. Here he's using the word minister as servant. And so if you see that, that if you were to see that that word minister on a church sign, you could just substitute it for servant. And what it actually means is somebody who's like a waiter. And I mean somebody who waits on tables. And that's what Paul says. We are ministers. We are waiters. We're servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you really want to look into the etymology of this word ministers, you'll find out that what it actually means, if you go back even further, it means under rowers. Well, what's an under rower? And that's under rowers, not under ruse, but under rowers. What is an under rower? Well, back in the ancient times... Uh, the Greek ships would have three tiers of rowers on a ship. They would have three levels there, and these three levels had all these slaves that were rowing those Greek ships. The under rower is the rower who's on the bottom of all those rowers. He's the last one. He's the lowest of all the slaves that are on that ship. And so he sits down there in the very bottom of the ship, in the nastiest part of the ship, the hottest part of the ship, I mean, there are two rows of slaves that are above him and all of the sweat and all of the spit and even the urine would run down on those poor old slaves that were right down there in the bottom of the ship. These are also the slaves that had the shortest stroke on the oars. I mean, the the oars above them are longer. They have the shortest stroke and so that means they have to row harder in order to keep up. So these are the guys that are really sweating it out right down there in the bottom in the worst part. And this was not a glamorous job. 
Now look at this and the way that Paul is applying it here. Whenever a preacher decides that he's going to add glamour to his job, and he decides that I have to be the one up front, I have to be the one that all eyes are focused on, I'm the big man in this church, I have to have power and prestige, he's not using the word the same way that Paul uses it in the scriptures here. Paul is saying here that the preacher is nothing but an instrument of God. It's the instrument that God uses. And so what Paul says, when you brag on us because of our preaching, you're bragging on the wrong thing. The person that you need to brag in, brag on is God. Give God all the glory because that's where the glory belongs. So Paul says, I'm just the instrument. Bragging on Paul would be like going to the hospital and having an operation And then when you have that operation, you come out of the operating room and you get ready to head home and you tell all of your friends, you know something, that hospital there, they have the best scalpels of all the hospitals in town. They have the cleanest and the brightest, the shiniest scalpels. Well, you don't do that, do you? You don't brag on the scalpel, you brag on the surgeon. And you talk about what a fine job the surgeon did because the scalpel is just the instrument that the surgeon uses. And this is what Paul is saying. I am just the instrument that God uses. And so if you want to brag on somebody, don't brag on me. Brag on the Lord Jesus Christ. He deserves all the glory. So a person that God uses is one who knows exactly where he stands in God's scheme of things. He understands what it means to be a servant. Then next, this person is also one who understands spiritual gifts. Now, Paul will have a lot more to say about spiritual gifts later on in the book. When we get to those chapters, we're going to deal with it in more detail. But if you look at the last part of verse number 5, he says again, even as the Lord gave to every man. And what he's saying is that the source of all good gifts and the source of all graces that a Christian has, these come from God. We don't add anything to this. God is the one who supplies it all. And he means then that God has given every person a gift in the church. He's given certain jobs for us to do, and he wants you to do that job. Now, later on in chapters uh, 12 and 13, a little bit more, Paul's really going to get into this idea of spiritual gifts. But Paul is saying here that God has given you one or more spiritual gifts, and the thing that you are to do in God's church, you are to minister or you are to serve according to the gift that God has given. So God gives these specific gifts in order to serve him in the church. So about Paul, he says, you know, Paul really is, or or Apollos rather, Apollos really is a good preacher. And so God has given him the gift of preaching. To Paul, he given the gift of teaching and the gift of apostleship. And so Paul says, don't give me any credit for this because God is the one who deserves the credit. So if you are here and you're a member of Berean Baptist Church, you need to understand that God has given you some kind of a spiritual gift. He's given you some ability that you can serve him in his church. Now, God doesn't gift everybody the same one and he does the same way and doesn't give everybody the same amount of gifts. But everybody has a gift that God has given to serve. I love this illustration that I, that I read about or heard about recently. There was a, an elderly lady in a church many years ago And she thought that her usefulness to God was over. She's she's old. She can't keep up with what the young people are doing. And she just doesn't find, couldn't find a ministry where she could be used in her church. And so she began to look for a ministry. 
And she found one in which she could be used by God. What she decided to do was she started to take gospel tracts and she would wrap those tracts around a piece of candy. Then she would wrap that whole package in brightly colored cellophane in order to pass them out. Now, the only problem is she's, a, she's an elderly lady. She, she can't go out and walk up and down the streets to pass these out. So she has to have a way of distribution. So she gave those gospel tracts and, and that piece of candy to a young ministerial student. He was uh, going to school in a seminary some distance away, and he had to travel the rural highways in order to get there. And his method of distributing these tracts was to drive down the road and just toss them out the window. Now, today, of course, we, we, that's littering. We'd probably get arrested for doing it. But back then, that's what he did. He just tossed these things out the window. Well, over the years, this lady received many calls and letters from people who received those tracts. You see, on the inside, she wrote her name and address and told people, if you need some help, you just call me and I'd be willing to help you. And over the years, there were many people who came to know the Lord Jesus Christ because they simply read that tract that she put out there. Now, the point of this is, God can use you in some ministry. What you need to do is find out what that ministry is. And it doesn't make any difference how old you are or how young you are. If you've been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, God can give you a ministry in which you can serve his church. And this is what God expects from us. Well, not everybody, as I said, can have the same ministry. This lady affected hundreds of people by passing out tracts and... Uh, Maybe you can't do that, but there's something that you can do. So here is a person, the one that God blesses, the one who understands servanthood, and he's also the person who asks, what can I do to serve God in my church? And so we understand spiritual gifts. Now, I might want to ask you the question, do you understand what your spiritual gift is? And right now, you may not even know. Maybe you haven't explored it. Maybe you haven't looked for it. Maybe you haven't seen what God wants you to do. Paul says you don't have to be ignorant of it because God has given you something that you can do in his church in order to serve him. Now, I think the problem is that most of us really do know what we're gifted to do. There are things that we're good at, but instead of doing what God has called us to do, we just don't do it. And so the question is, do you know your gift and are you using the gift that God has given so here's the person that God blesses. He's the one who understands servanthood. I know exactly where I stand in the scheme of things. And I also understand that I need to find out what God wants me to do and use that spiritual gift. Now, let's go on here because Paul is also showing us, number two, the plan that God blesses. Now, what I'm going to use today as we discuss this next part of the sermon is to use the secondary application of the Scripture. All Scriptures have a primary application, and sometimes you have passages of Scripture that have secondary, tertiary, and so on. They have different applications that you can use. Last week, we talked about the primary application, and that's how God grows the church through spiritual maturity, turning people that were spiritual babies into, into spiritually uh, uh, mature Christians for Him. But we're going to talk about the secondary application today, and that's how God grows the church through evangelism. And God does have a way that he grows, grows his church. I mean, it's always the same plan. Now, church growth is really an interesting thing. There are many seminaries that consider church growth to be an entire discipline of study. 
And so you have people that go into seminaries and they're training for ministry and, and they may train on the issue of church growth and evangelism. How do you take a church and grow a church? And so they'll study all these different churches that are growing. They'll look at the methods that they're using and they'll try to implement those methods and put them into their church in order to cause the church to grow. But the problem is there are many churches that are growing but they're not growing according to the method that the Bible says to use to grow that church. And so they're not growing according to God's plan. And there's a big argument over this. What is the most important thing when you talk about church growth? Is it numerical growth or is it maturity? Uh, Taking immature Christians and growing them into mature Christians. And there's a big argument over that. Which is it, growth or is it maturity? And so that's the debate. Numerical growth or spiritual growth? And people argue it from both sides. But I don't believe that the idea is mutually exclusive. Now, there are some people that, that they do grow the church and they grow it without maturity. And there's no question that they are outside of God's will and outside of God's plan. But when you take a church and this church is growing properly, it will grow in maturity. There will be uh, spiritual growth but there will also be numerical growth. Those things go together. And so Paul is going to tell us here, how do you grow that church numerically and spiritually? And this is God's plan for the church. If you don't believe me, just go read the book of Acts. There it tells us that God added to the church daily those that should be saved. Well, the thing about it is what we can't do, we can't put a time limit on this. We can't say we have to grow a certain amount in a certain amount of time And if we don't do that, then we're completely out of God's will. So how do we take this church that's running 200 people, let's say, and make that a church of 500 people, and how can we do that quickly? Well, that's the wrong approach to things. And you know why? Because both verses 6 and 7 tell us that the increase comes from God. You or I do not grow the church. The growth comes from God himself. And so he's the one who gives the increase. There are two things that are pointed out in this passage about God's plan. The first one is, he shows us here that this is a joint effort. Growing the church is something that all of us work together in order to produce. What Paul uses here in these next verses is an agricultural metaphor. Now, I don't know how many of you were raised on a farm, but Paul uh, wrote to these people and he used illustrations that they could very readily understand. And so he uses a metaphor here like growing a garden. Now, in this scripture, Paul says, I have planted. And actually, there are more things that are involved in growing a garden than Paul mentions here. There are more than three steps that he gives in this passage. And we're going to add to the steps that Paul's given. He's given three steps. We're going to talk about four steps that it takes in order to grow the church. Now, the first one is that you have to plow the ground. I mean, you have to go out and you have to break up the ground. You have to prepare the soil in order to sow the seed. If you remember, the prophet Jeremiah spoke to the people of Judah and he said, break up your fallow ground. And what he meant was, your hearts need to be softened up towards the things of God. And so this is what you do when you plow the ground. You're softening up a person's heart in order to receive the seed of the gospel that's sown. What you don't do, you don't go out and sow seeds on hard ground. If you've planted a garden before, you don't just go out and throw the seed out on hard ground. You run the plow over it. You soften up the ground first. 
Well, what does it mean then to spiritually plow a person's heart or to soften up the heart in order for the reception of the gospel? Well, one way that God might use to soften a person's heart and prepare them for the gospel is through building bridges of friendship. And what I mean by that is establishing a relationship with people. When you make friends with people, when you make, uh, build that bridge and you build that relationship with them, then you have the perfect opportunity later in order to give that person the gospel of Christ. And so you begin to prepare their heart for the gospel. Now, you might be a person in the church that you're good at this. You have a ministry of preparation. And we're going to talk about planting the seed in just a minute. But there may be some of you here that you say, you know, I'm not very good at planting those seeds. I really don't know how to take a person and give them a two, three, four, or five point presentation of the gospel in order to help them to understand how to be saved. I don't know how to take the book of Romans and lead somebody down the Romans road and exactly show them, you know, all those steps and know all the scriptures to put it all together to tell them to how to be saved. Well, maybe you're not able to do that. And maybe you have the ministry of preparation. And that, that's okay. You can build those bridges. You can build inroads into people's lives. How do you do that? Well, it might be when you make a friend with somebody that, you know, you bake them some cookies. You see somebody in the neighborhood that's mowing their lawn and you come along and you say, can I give you a hand with that? Or, or somebody washing the car and you say, you know, I'll help you wash your car. And you just begin to build a bridge of friendship. And what you're doing, you're plowing the ground and making that person's heart fertile for the gospel of Christ. Then the next thing that you do is you plant the seed. In Matthew, Jesus used a parable about a man who went out to sow a field. And he took the seed and he planted it. And there were seeds that fell into all different kinds of soil. In that parable, the seed represented the word of God. And the soil, the different types of soil in which the seed fell, represented the human heart. And so this person went out and sowed seed on different types of ground. Now, when the heart then is prepared for the message of Christ, and when the seed is sown, then that person is now ready to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and to believe it. You know, I disagree with some people. And there are some churches who who totally disagree with me on this. I do not believe that sowing the seed and giving the gospel is the same gift in all Christians. And there are some who very vehemently disagree with with that. And there are some people who say that giving the gospel to people is not even a gift at all. That all Christians are to be involved in that ministry and you naturally have the talent to do that. You know, I disagree with that. I'm going to tell you why. I disagree because I definitely know people who are better at talking to others one-on-one. They're better at presenting things. They're better at giving the information out than other people are. They're just simply better at doing that. And their ministry of sowing the seed does not invalidate the ministry of people who do the preparing of the soil. Both of those things are needed. But the thing about sowing seed is that you have to sow a lot of seed if you want to have a big crowd or big crop. You see, the more seed that's sown, the more plants that grow. And so if you want to see lots of people come to know Jesus Christ as Savior, then you have to scatter a lot of seed. Well, there's different ways to scatter that seed. We just talked about the elderly lady who, who sowed seeds with, uh, by passing out gospel tracts. And maybe you can sow a seed in that way. Maybe you want to take... Uh, a gospel track this afternoon. And when you go out after church, maybe you'll go into a restaurant 
And as you finish up your meal, you, you give that gospel track to your server. Now, I encourage you to do this. Give that server a big tip with your gospel track because if you don't, your gospel track's going to end up in the garbage for sure. So tip them really well, give them the gospel track, and there you've sown a seed. You may want to leave one at a gas station, at the grocery store, pin one up on a bulletin board somewhere. Sometimes you do it this way. You just drop a word about your church and about the Lord in the daily conversations that you have with people. Well, a person who knows about planting seeds knows that you don't expect all the seeds to pop up at once. Many people do not believe the gospel when you give it to them. Now, does that mean that you're a failure? You know, a a farmer, if a farmer felt like a failure every time that he sowed a seed, not every single seed germinated and grew, he'd be a pretty miserable farmer all the time if he felt like a failure because of that. But he doesn't. He just keeps sowing a lot of seed, and he's patient to wait for the harvest. And so this is what Paul means. He says, I planted the seed. So you, so you plow, and then you plant, and the next thing that you do is you water the seed. Paul planted, but then Paul had to leave Corinth. He didn't stay in Corinth for, for a real long amount of time. He had to leave. There were other places to preach, other churches to start, other people to evangelize, and so he had to leave. And so Apollos came along, and he watered what Paul had sown. So this is the way it works. You may leave a gospel tract for someone to read, And they read that track, and then someone else comes along, and they begin to speak to that person. And so this person may hear the gospel in another way, but their heart has been prepared. It's been opened. A seed has been sown because that track has been placed there. They've read that, and now they're ready to receive the gospel of Christ. And somebody comes along and just waters the seed that's been sown. And so when you speak to someone, you may not even realize this, that somebody else is all already planted a seed there. And what you're doing is actually watering the seed that someone else has planted. So this is watering. And some of you can be involved in that. Water the seed. But here comes the really good part for everybody. And next comes the harvest. You harvest the crop. I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. God made it grow. And when it grows, Finally, there comes a harvest. Now, in, the, in this metaphor, the harvest is when that person receives Jesus Christ as Savior. They're born again into the family of God. Now, they are the harvest. Now, the wonderful thing about this is that it took all the steps working together. It took all of these people involved in those steps in order to finally see that harvest to come. And the point here is the church works towards this and bringing people into the harvest is a joint effort. Now, sometimes it's true there is one person that does this, but not all the time. And I would say in our church, usually the case is that there are many people that are involved in bringing a person to Jesus Christ. Almost what always happens in this church, that people who come forward here and they've received Christ as their Savior, they've already been through the office. I've already talked with them. I know exactly what, they, what they've done, that they've received Christ. And the reason that they did is because there was someone in the church who invited them to come to church. They sat here and they listened to the preaching of the gospel. There were other people in the church that took an interest to them. You know, that's why I think it's so important that we have fellowship time and we shake hands and you talk to people that come and visit our church because people get influenced by that. So somebody took an interest in them 
And now through that interest and through hearing the gospel of Christ and being invited to church, now that person believes in Jesus Christ and they come to him in faith. So it's a joint effort. I don't think that evangelism was intended to be a single effort. It's intended to be a joint effort. And that's why when Jesus gave the Great Commission, he gave it to all of the apostles as they constituted that first New Testament church. And he gave them the commission to evangelize the world. And he wanted all of them to be involved in that. So you don't need to be discouraged when you're not the person who brings in the harvest. Because all of us can be involved in this and we can help you. Now, unfortunately, though, there are some people who are concerned about who gets the credit for all of this. They want the credit. And there are people who want to be soul winners just for the sake of being soul winners and being called a soul winner. And there are people who want to be preachers just for the sake of being called a preacher. There are some churches that if you don't have X number of people that come down the aisle every week for salvation or for some other reason, you are not going to be a part of that church staff. And so you see what happens? They're putting the pressure on the individual performance of people to bring people to Christ when it's really supposed to be a group effort. All of us are to be involved in bringing these persons to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, sometimes someone else is doing the plowing, somebody else does the planting, somebody else does the watering, and you just happen to be the one who gets the harvest. And that's great. It's wonderful if you get the harvest, but you don't deserve the credit. No one person controls this process. Not the plower, not the planter, not the waterer, not the harvester. It's God who controls it all. God's the one who gives the increase. So what happens is you have many Christians that get very discouraged about their witnessing. And they stop witnessing because they don't see the harvest like they think that they ought to. Well, let me ask you. If you witness to somebody and they get saved, who deserves the credit? God deserves the credit, doesn't he? So if you witness to someone and they don't get saved, who deserves the blame? Do you deserve the blame for that? Not at all. Because God is the one who controls the whole process. So he's the one that's able to bring people in. And folks, if you just get that into your heart and you understand this, it will relieve that pressure of performance that so many churches try to put on people to get out there and witness and just bring those people in and get them saved. You you need to be involved in the process, but you're not the only one that's involved. It's God who gives the increase. Well, there's something else in God's plan, and this is the part that really makes it exciting. This is a joint effort, and we look forward to a joyful prospect. Verse number 8 says, Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one, And every man shall receive his own reward according to his labor. So he says, the one who plants and the one who waters are one. Well, that doesn't mean they're the same person. We've already talked about that. It's not the same person all the time. But what it means is we're all united together with the same goal. We have the same thing in mind. And so we're working together to bring that person to Christ. And when we do that, we have the joyful prospect of receiving the harvest. In Psalm 126, it says, They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. When I was a kid, my mom used to hang clothes out on the, on the clothesline in the backyard. And uh, she would wash the sheets off the bed. She'd change the sheets and she'd take them out there and hang them on the clothesline. 
And she'd bring those sheets in, and oh man, those things really just smelled so good after they dried out there outside. And we used to have a song in church about that. Maybe you know it, and you did too. Bringing in the sheets, bringing in the sheets. We shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheets. And I used to wonder, why are so pe- people singing about this? Why are they so happy about bringing in the sheets? You may remember, I've told you about this before. We, we sang the song, you know, uh, rescue the perishing, care for the dying, snatch them in pity from sin in the grave. And as a little boy, I never could figure out what a perishing was. Rescue the perishing? What's that mean? Is that like a sewing machine or a washing machine? What does that mean? Well, obviously, it's talking about people are perishing in sin. And when you sing the song, bringing in the sheaves, not bringing in the sheets. And what it's talking about is the wonderful harvest that we receive in bringing those souls in for Jesus Christ. It's knowing that you are able to participate in this wonderful work that God is doing. Jesus told his disciples, Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. He that reapeth receiveth wages, and gathereth fruit unto life eternal, that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. What we need to learn is that there are people out there that are ready to be harvested. Somebody has already plowed the ground, and there are seeds that have been planted. Somebody's come along and watered those seeds, and those people are ready for the harvest. And you find these kinds of people where you work. You find them in your neighborhood. They're among all of your acquaintances. There are people that are at the mall or wherever they are. There are people that have had all of this work preparation that's been done. And now we're ready to receive the harvest. And the thing that you've got to do, you've got to go out there and bring them in. The Bible says that when you are burdened enough. Look at that psalm again. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. It says when you are burdened enough to weep, when you can go out weeping, then you can come back with songs of joy. And that might be the problem for many of us. We go out laughing and we go out with a haughty attitude and instead we come back weeping because nobody's been saved. The biblical pattern is to go out with the burden and to return with joy. I once heard the story of a young, arrogant seminary student He got up behind the pulpit and he got up to preach what he thought was the best sermon that anybody ever heard. But as he was preaching, he just kept making a mess of things and things kept getting worse and worse. And finally, he left the pulpit in humility. Well, there was a wise old preacher that came up to him and he said, if you had walked into the pulpit the way that you walked out of it, then you would have walked out of the pulpit in the way that you walked into it. In other words, he said, you walked, if you'd walked into that pulpit with a broken heart and with a spirit of humility, then you would have been able to walk out of that pulpit with a spirit of joy. But instead, you walked into it with a feeling of arrogance, and now you have to walk out broken. Now, you see, that's God's pattern. There's the joyful prospect of bringing people to Christ and the reward of seeing them saved. So here we have the person that God blesses, and we have the plan that God blesses, And now finally, we're going to look at the partnership that God blesses. Verse number 9 says, For we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry, ye are God's building. The Bible says that we are laborers together. And we have got to work together because, folks, we are on the same team. There's a story told about two old warships that were fighting. 
they, they were two old sailing ships, and they met on a real foggy night where you couldn't see anything. And these two ships were firing at one another all night long, and there were many sailors on both sides that had been killed. In the early morning, the fog rose, and these ships discovered that they were sailing under the same flag. They'd been fighting one another. And isn't that what happens a lot of time in churches? We spend our time fighting one another instead of going out there and presenting the gospel of Christ. I mean, we aim our guns at each other. There's a line in one hymn that says, Like a mighty army moves the church of God. And someone very wisely said, You know, the church is the only army that shoots its wounded. And there's another one that said, The only time that a church looks like a mighty army is when they head for the parking lot after the service. Folks, what we need to do is stop pointing our guns at one another because the enemy's not sitting in here. The enemy's out there. We've got to fight him. So at Corinth, there you have a church that's divided. They're into all these little groups. And Paul says to them, you have to work together as a team. And when you work together, that's when God will bless you. Now, if you look quickly at the last part of verse 9, it says, you are God's husbandry. And what that means is you are God's field And he says, you're God's building. He develops that further, and we're going to get into it next week. But what he's saying here is you are clods of dirt in God's field. And one clod of dirt doesn't make a field. It takes all the clods of dirt. And one brick does not make a building. It takes all of the bricks to make the building. Now, I want you to notice then the last statement on your listening sheet today. You were not designed to be one little light shining alone. You see, if you're a Christian, God did not design for you to be alone. He didn't want you to be one single little shining light out there all by yourself. Years ago, they used to measure light in candle power. And one candle power is the power of light with the intensity of one candle. And maybe you've seen these big spotlights that they put out there in in shopping lot Uh, shopping center parking lots and car lots and things like that, a huge spotlight. And they used to measure those in candle power. And some of them would have thousands of candle power. Well, here, God has not intended for you as a Christian to be just one candle power. Here in Berean Baptist Church today, we have lots of candle power, probably over 100 candle power right here. And the thing is, we produce more light being together than you can ever produce out there on your own. So God doesn't want you producing one candle power. He wants you to be a part of his church, a body that works together in order to bring the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ to all the rest of the world. The Bible says that a threefold cord is not quickly broken. And what that means is you put us all together and we can withstand a lot. We we can take a lot when we all stand together. So the question is, are you a part of God's church? And maybe you're weak today and you're unfulfilled in your Christian life and you don't get where you think that you need to be because you don't have the support that you need. Well, you can find it right in God's church. Maybe it's because you haven't become a part of the church. God has a plan for a church and it involves all of us working together in order to carry out that plan. So you need to be involved in the partnership. And I promise you this, If you'll do that, we can all have a big part in bringing in the harvest for Jesus Christ. And that's the kind of church that we want to be, a growing church because we're a church that works together. Would you pray with me, please? 
Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the opportunity to preach your word today. And Lord, we do need a unified church. We want a growing church. We want one that stands together and does the work together. Lord, I pray that you might speak to some Christians' heart today. Help them to understand that they need to be a part of your church and they need to work here. Lord, I ask you that if there's anyone here lost today, they haven't received you as their personal Savior. I just ask you, Lord, to open up their hearts to the gospel today. Help them to understand that Jesus is the one who saves, and he's the one who can change the heart and make it new. Would you talk to people today, Lord? Send your Holy Spirit among us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.